You can you can just leave your Bible open there to Psalm 46. We'll, we'll come back to the book of Psalms in just a minute. But um, if you're brand new, uh, welcome. Welcome to Sunday School. And uh, we're in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Lamentations. We've gotten to the end of the book. And so what I'm doing in these really last couple of Sundays before we start the new semester here in a couple of weeks is uh, sort of tying up some loose ends topically. Um, Lamentations has raised a lot of issues about obviously sorrow and grief and lament and what God's doing and how we deal with that. And uh, so we've talked along the way. Uh, last week we talked about the, the very popular grief stages and how we think about grief stages in the light of Scripture. Uh, we've talked about the nature of grief and sorrow. And what I want to do is try to pull a lot of those things together, similar to what I did with grief last week. But uh, I want to sort of present to you, uh, this, this, this sounds probably more more uh, uh, this sounds more exciting than it probably will be, but I, I want to pull together what I'm calling a theology of sadness, and, and I hope that you don't walk away discouraged. I hope that you walk away encouraged, uh, because sadness is one of those things that we all deal with, uh, and and you might be, you know, a junior high student, or or you might be in your 80s, and and you've all dealt with sadness, and uh, so this is a normal. Uh, part of living in a fallen world. We all deal with it. And uh, the Bible is no stranger to it. The, the Bible addresses sadness. It, it shows us examples of it. And uh, so what I want to do is just kind of walk you through uh, sadness 101. What is sadness? Why does it happen? What causes it? And, um, and how ought to we think of, how we, how should we think about it as believers? And, and especially uh, I, I want to remind you of what God is doing in the midst of sadness. Like so many things in life that are hurtful and painful, God does some of his best work in those moments. And so we don't want to miss that, and we want to be encouraged as we might be in a season of sadness today, or there may be one in the future that um, we, we know what God is doing and we can draw near to him in a, applying our faith in, in wise ways to the issue of sadness, okay? So, so the first thing, and if you got um, an outline, they're back on the back chair by, by Rusty there, so if you, you need one, you can wander back there. Hopefully, if you'd like one, um, you've already picked up one. Um, but before we get to a, a definition here, I, you guys aren't too old for show and tell, right? Show and tell's okay? I want to highlight a book here for you, and I, I didn't put it in the notes. Um, I'll bring it, I'll just leave it here, and you guys can come look at it. Uh, it's called Facing Grief. Facing Grief, uh, the author's name is John Flavel, F-L-A-V-E-L, Flavel. Uh, John Flavel was a 17th century pastor in England, uh, what we call the Puritans. And um, j- j- just listen to this, okay? And I, I just want to uh, very briefly share with you why I think this is a book that you might be interested in. Uh, he was a minister of the gospel in South England, uh, in the, like I said, the 17th century, um, like his master, this is a, a, a contemporary author writing about Flavel, like his master, he lived a life acquainted with grief. He was one of thousands of ministers of the Church of England who resigned their living in the great, re, great ejection of 1662. His parents both died of the plague in 1665 under tragic circumstances. Flavel saw the death of his child and three wives. Listen to this. After only two years of marriage, his first wife, Joanna, died in childbirth along with their first child. 
he remarried and also grieved the loss of Elizabeth, his second wife. Having remarried again to Agnes, he also lost her. He was survived by his fourth wife, Dorothy. So this is a man that, that not just wrote about grief and preached about grief, but, but lived in it at a level that probably you and I will never know. In 1674, two years after his second wife had died, John Flavel published this book called A Token for Mourners based upon advice he gave to a woman who had lost her only child. So, so the, the, the treatise here is a series of letters that he wrote to this dear lady who had lost her child. And of course, Flavel is writing as somebody who had lost his own child and lost uh, the first wife. And of course, he didn't know at that point there would be more grief as well. So uh, I want to come back to a couple of things that he says in a moment, but just it's called Facing Grief. It's one of those little Puritan paperbacks, and um, it, it's not your typical grief book. I, I wouldn't say, you know, pick this up and give it to the, your friend that's, that's mourning because it, there are some pretty profound things there, and sometimes you've got to work up to those. But, but it is um, really, really helpful and significant in that. So Facing Grief by John Flavel. Okay, so back to our text now. What is sadness? It's interesting when you, I mean, how would how would you define sadness? So just you know, aliens from Mars land and they don't know anything about emotion and you, they, you know, define sadness, right? What would you tell them? Yeah. Sorrow. Sorrow. Mm-hmm. How else would you describe it? Loss. Loss. Introspective, mm-hmm. the opposite of happiness. That's right. Yeah, and what's interesting is, and, and this is where the the Bible is so helpful. And we know it's God's word. We know it's sufficient. We know it has answers. But but one of the things that the Bible does to surprise us is it gives us insight that you're not going to get anywhere else. And sometimes it's obvious, and you go, well, "Why didn't I think of that?" And other times you, you go, "Wow, I never would have guessed that." Um, so if you study the language of sorrow in the Bible. Here's what you get. Sadness or sorrow is pain of heart. That's what it is. Literally pain of heart. Uh, Proverbs 15, 13. You don't need to turn there. But you know the verse. And uh, and let me just remind you of this verse here, okay? Because this is the Bible's own definition. The Bible's own definition or description of sorrow. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. But when the heart is sad... The spirit is broken. That sad heart, that pain of heart language is what is the basic definition, the basic thought behind sadness. Now, now you notice that's very generic, right? It doesn't talk about why your heart might be painful, why your heart might be sad in that way. Um, It's just that's sort of the drip pan definition, right? Sadness is a pain in your soul, okay? Now, Now, secondly, it's interesting um, again, no surprise here, but, but we want to build our theology from the Bible. The Bible teaches there are two types of pain. Uh, there is that physiological body sort of somatic pain, right? You know, you have a toothache or you have an ulcer or you, you break a bone snowboarding, right? All those things are indicative of a physiological body associated pain, right? And, and we all know that uh, in some way or another. Um, At the same time, the Bible acknowledges a second type of pain. This is not a pain associated with something physically wrong or ill or broken in your physical body. 
This is a pain of heart, a pain of soul. Uh, this is why uh, if you, you, you have some friend that's in a verbally abusive marriage and she might tell you, my husband has never struck me, he's never hit me, he's never been physically violent, but I am hurting because that verbal pain, that verbal, excuse me, that, that verbal sin can create a soul pain, a spiritual pain that, that is uh, just as unpleasant and sometimes even more unpleasant than if somebody was being physically assaulted. And you know that, right? There's a pain of loss. There's a pain of grief. There's a pain of um, unmet expectations. There's a grief of um, things people do and say to you. And uh, the Bible just says that that's, that's a reality. That's a legitimate category. Now, what's interesting, we're not going to get into this today. What's interesting is there is a very complicated connection between your physical pain and this sort of spiritual pain or, or pain of heart. You know that you can be dealing with some grief in your heart, right? Right? Some, some pain of heart, and it affects you physically, doesn't it? Right? And you know, conversely, you might be dealing with some physical pain, and as you're trying to deal with that, it starts to hurt in your soul as well. So there's a connection. Don't, don't see these as isolated things. They are connected together in, in a way that uh, I don't know that we fully understand or appreciate. Um, doctors even tell us, the guys that research this, that even how you interpret and respond to your physical pain, your body pain, will affect the actual experience of pain that you have. It's fascinating, right? And if you missed that, basically... Uh, our inner man, our spiritual hearts in terms of how we're thinking about our pain and responding to our pain is significant to even how we experience that pain. So again, that's, we're not getting off on that today, but, but suffice it to say this is a fascinating area um, and one that when you're ministering to somebody that's dealing with pain of evil either sort, don't, ever focus, don't focus on one to the detriment of the other. You've got some friend that's dealing with cancer, a physical pain, you know, Talk to her about that, but don't forget she's hurting in her soul as well, right? And, and don't forget that if you've got somebody who's grieving a sort of soul pain, don't ignore the physical parts of her life, sleeping and eating and exercise, stuff like that, because those things are connected, okay? All right, that's all I'm going to say. Next, the Bible describes this heart pain, this pain of heart, using different phrases. And you're familiar with many of these. I just threw a few here so that you had some reference uh, we're just going to wave our hands at it right now, but you can look these up on your own time if you're interested. So how does the Bible describe that? A broken spirit. That's one, a very popular way. The Bible talks about a broken spirit. And when it's talking about that, it's saying this is that soul pain, that, that, that heart pain that we're referencing. A crushed spirit. A sad heart. That's the verse we saw in Proverbs 15 there, right? <clears throat> Isaiah 65 calls it a pain of heart. Um, we see in the Psalms later on and in the prophets especially a broken heart or broken heartedness. When we read in the Bible, God is near to who? The broken hearted. Well, that's really encouraging, isn't it? 
So when it talks about the brokenhearted, it's, it's not talking about, you know, that, that junior high boy that just broke up with his girlfriend. I mean, that, that might be one instance. But when the Bible talks about a broken heart, it's much broader. It's dealing with any sort of uh, spiritual, um, emotional sort of heart-soul pain there. And that's how the Bible does that. Uh, affliction or anguish of heart. And again, this should be really encouraging to you. God has not left us without a resource when you and I are dealing with that. The Bible is all about this. The, the, the message of the Bible is, is intersecting these difficult moments of heart pain almost on every page of the Bible from Genesis 3 on to about Revelation 20. And we'll talk about why that is in a minute. Okay, so just know that, that these are places, if you're struggling like this, or you know somebody who's struggling like this, these are the texts you want to go to. Okay, read them. And don't just read them like, oh, there's the term. Read the whole psalm. Read the whole chapter. Look at what the person is dealing with in terms of circumstances and context. And then watch, as so often is the case, that God is ministering. God is moving toward that person in their brokenheartedness. And and those... Uh, those sections of the scripture give us insight of how we think about that and, and more importantly, how God helps us. So, so there's a, a great list there for you guys to consider. We're just trying to define sadness. We've got to keep going because I'm trying to give you a whole theology here uh, in just a few minutes. So we've got to keep moving. Okay. Now, now, interesting, you know this because we've talked about this many times this semester. Like all emotions, sadness reveals you. That's what emotions do, right? Emotions reveal you. They reveal me. They reveal our hearts. Again, hearts meaning that that spiritual part of us. And isn't that interesting, right? You know, anger reveals what you think is right and wrong, right? Anger is the emotion of of justice or injustice. Um, Sadness, or last week, last week when we talked about grief, grief is emotion that shows you what you value. Or what you don't value, right? So sadness, again, if we broaden it out, gr- grief is a certain type of sadness, right? But if we just broaden it out and say, what is sadness saying? Sadness tells us a lot about us, like all emotions. It tells you what you believe about all sorts of things. About what you believe about God. What you believe about your circumstances. What you believe about yourself. Your emotions reveal you. Sadness reveals your desires, what you want or what you don't want, right? What you fear. Um, Sadness reveals your values, as we talked about with grief last week. Sadness reveals your expectations, the the, the things that you really want to happen or you're hoping will happen. Um, And and again, I'm not going to give a whole theology on that right now, but just... Suffice it to say, your sadness is telling you about you. And that's part of what God's doing in unpleasant emotions like sadness, is He is helping you to see things about yourself more clearly than you see them when life is more pleasant. And again, that's not God saying, oh, you're this horrible person. It's God saying, do you see? Because what you believe, what you want, what you worship, what you expect, those are the most important things about us. And that's what God is doing in emotion, is He's showing us what are those most important things. And then we can evaluate them. 
You know, if I'm grieving over the loss of a loved one and my emotion shows me that I valued that loved one, well, guess what? That's a good thing, right? You're supposed to value and love a loved one. But if those things that grief and emotion reveal are maybe misguided or out of place or reflect wrong thinking or wrong valuing, well, hey, there's an opportunity for me to see my heart and make necessary changes with God's help. Does that make sense? So again, we'll, we'll, we need to keep moving here, but, but just remember, your emotions are saying something. Listen to them. Now, don't, don't follow them. The, the emotions were never meant to be the, the GPS Google navigation, right? Don't, don't follow your emotion as a guide, but listen to it as a diagnostic, because it's telling you important things about yourself. Okay, now what causes sadness? This is really interesting. We'll look at a few of these. Uh, we won't look at all of these. First um, Samuel chapter 1. Do you remember what First Samuel chapter 1 is all about? We're going to turn there because we're going to use this as something of an example this morning. Uh, so let's turn in our Bibles to the book of First Samuel chapter 1. Uh, you, you'll recall that First uh, and Second Samuel uh, describe this, this season in the time of the Israelites as it's transitioning away from the book of Judges, that the season where the judges, uh, these, these men that God would uh, uh, rise up to sort of oversee and govern the people, the, the, the nation of Israel is governed by those judges, and then it transitions to what? Do you remember what comes next after the judges? The kings, right? So the book of 1 Samuel is that transition from the, the rule of judges to the rule of the kings. And of course, Samuel was the last who? The last judge, right? So that's why he gets the honor of having the book named after him, right? We're, we're moving into this. Now you remember, uh, there's this, uh, uh, this man, Elkanah, and his wife, Hannah. And um, actually he had two wives. That was one of the problems that was going on in that day, right? That's not God's design. So uh, Penina and Hannah were his wives, and, and Penina was able to have children. Hannah was not. And um, it's interesting. So um, well, let's just look a little bit of the story here, okay? Um, so uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Now this, this man, Elkanah, would go up to the city to worship. Um, and the two sons of Eli, yeah, the priest... Hophni and Phinehas were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and also to her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her room. Her rival, meaning Penina, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? There's one of our phrases there, right? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Just a footnote, guys. That's not how you comfort your wife. You know, what are you complaining about? You got me, right? That's not a good approach and I just, I'll leave it right there, okay? Uh, We know that because it doesn't work, okay? Just, that's for free, guys. Just trust me, that'll help you down the road. Verse 9, then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, 
But you will give me, give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come to his head. And then uh, we, we know, uh, there's so much to learn here, but we'll, we'll go on there. But suffice it to say, remember Eli Caesar sort of, you know, moving her mouth, but no words coming out. She thinks she's drunk. So, I mean, the guys are not doing well in this chapter, right? You know, you got Elkanah saying, aren't I better? You got Eli saying, you're drunk. You need to repent. And she's just praying. And anyway, so, um, but, so, but you guys know the story, right? And so what we see here is that sadness is often occasioned by an unmet expectation. And, and you know what? There are a lot of married ladies that are in this mode, right? That they want to have children, they can't for some reason, and that's a source of great sorrow and grief and disappointment. We see that there. Now we're going to come back to Hannah in a minute um, because I want to show you part of what God's doing in her sadness, okay? So just uh, just we'll keep a, a thumb in that page there. Uh, bad news. Remember Nehemiah? We're going to talk about Nehemiah uh, this semester. Uh, Nehemiah, there he is. He's the cupbearer of the king. He, he's working uh, for that, uh, that, that Babylonian king. And um, he comes in, and the text tells us that Nehemiah says, I, I never showed my sad emotion to the king until today. And the king noticed. He's like, it's Nehemiah, you get a sad face. You know, what's going on? And, and do you remember why Nehemiah was sad? What's that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he had just gotten the report from Jerusalem that the city was in shambles, the wall was broken, and, and that, of course, represented you know, their faith that represented their God. And so that just, that just broke up Nehemiah. So that bad news, right? Um, sinful words and actions of others. You remember Paul in second Corinthians, second Corinthians is called the, 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 um, a letter of sorrow, right? And, um, so what happens there is that you remember Paul, uh, who was, you know, an apostle who was pouring out his life to the Corinthians, they had accused him of being a false apostle and, and leading the people astray and changing the gospel. And um, so Paul is expressing his sorrow there in 2 Corinthians 2 because those false accusations, that, that, that sinful conversation toward Paul was very hurtful and was an occasion for sadness. Uh, David in Psalm 51, he talks about uh, the, the necessity of a broken heart, a broken spirit in the wake of his own sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, being rebuked for sin. Uh, isn't it true if if someone has to point out your sin in your life, that doesn't feel so good, does it? Right? It, it may be a good thing to do, but it can cause sadness. We'll talk about Second Corinthians and worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow here in a minute. Fear can cause sadness. Uh, Psalm uh, one sixteen. Again, you don't need to turn there. Uh, we'll just look at a few of these, but. Um, Psalm 116 is interesting. Listen to this. Um, uh, In Psalm 116, verse uh, 3, the writer writes, The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me, and I found distress and sorrow. You hear that? He's saying it was the fear of this dread and terror that led him to sorrow and grief there. Also, we can add to that approaching death. It wasn't just terror like, oh, this this fear, but it was specifically the fear of approaching death. It's not surprising as people approach the end of life. 
um, that they deal with sorrow and sadness. I mean, talk, talk to any you know hospice nurse or hospice care worker, and they talk about uh, the psychological drugs that they're giving a lot of those people in that stage of life because they're dealing with anxiety, they're dealing with depression, that sort of thing. Uh, feeling forgotten by God in, in Psalm 13. You guys know this. In Psalm 13, the, the writer cries out uh, in that very first verse there. What does he say? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Here it is. Having sorrow in my heart all the day. So when you feel forgotten by God, when you feel abandoned by God, that He's not answering, that He's not there. (laughs) Interesting. When you drink too much, expect sorrow. Um, that, That little end of Proverbs 23 that describes the foolishness and sinfulness of drunkenness and letting alcohol control you, it talks about the ongoing sorrow of the addicted man. And you know this. If you've dealt with addiction personally, you know somebody who's dealing with addiction, you know that sorrow is part of that addictive cycle. And uh, so if you're helping somebody with that, expect that sorrow will be part of that. Uh, The discipline of the Lord, we don't need to talk much about this because the whole book of Lamentations is about that, right? It's sorrow over God's discipline of the people. Bad news. Uh, In John 16, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to go back to heaven. And the Bible says sorrow filled the hearts of those disciples because they didn't want Jesus to go away. And unsaved loved ones. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9 about his unceasing sorrow and grief because he's looking at his countrymen, the Israelites that have largely rejected the gospel. And he is sorrowful over that. This is just just a a brief overview. But but suffice it to say, there's a lot of events. There's a lot of situations behind what causes our sorrow. Now, it's interesting that the Bible does not always make hard, specific distinctions in how it uses these terms. However, what we saw last time is true. Grief is usually seen as a type of sorrow or sadness that it is associated with the loss of something valuable. Okay, So when we're talking about grief, grief is sort of loss sorrow. And then there are other forms of sorrow as well. So what do we think about sorrow biblically? Now that we've kind of gotten a, a, a bit of a, a definition and we've looked at some causes, we know that sadness and sorrow are experiences that are only possible after sin entered the world. You don't have anything like this before Genesis 3. And as I'll show you at the end of our time, uh, there's coming a day when God will eradicate all sorrow and sadness again. And that's one of the reasons we have hope. Yet godly sorrow and grief are righteous responses. There is such a thing as godly sorrow and righteous grief. You say, how do we know that? Because God himself manifests a form of godly sorrow and grief. We understand that God, when the Bible talks about God having emotion, it's not the same as us, right? It's it's accommodating our language and whatnot, but it does express in some way uh, the, the character of God. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, right? God looks out he's, his creation that, that's not that old. You know, and he looks out, and, and what does he say? Remember what the writer says? Every intent of the heart of man was only evil continually. And the Bible says God grieved over that. This is not, this is not the, the humanity uh, as God intended it to be, right? So the, the sorrow over sin and hard-heartedness, that is a form of godly grief. 
we see in Isaiah 53, we talked about this last time, Jesus is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, and verse 4 says, he came to bear our sorrows. And, and I'm here to tell you that when Jesus bears our sorrows, and when we, following his example, help bear the sorrows of others, that is a godly sorrow. When, when we sorrow for our brother or sister who's sorrowing, that is a godly sorrow. When we sorrow because of the loss of a loved one, Jesus wept when Lazarus died, the Bible tells us. That, that is a godly grief. So, so God himself, the Father and the Son, legitimize for us a godly grief. That's important because this helps us to see that sorrow is not necessarily something that we need to fear run away from, avoid, try to fix quickly, or conclude as a mental disorder. Now, I did something. I didn't believe this. Um, there's a book called The, the Loss of Sorrow. Um, if you guys know the, the book, uh, Charlie Hodges, Good Mood, Bad Mood, he actually references the book in there, The Loss of Sorrow. And in, in it, the authors are tracing sort of the history of depression and some sociological factors. But, but this is one of the conclusions of this book. Um, Fifty years ago... When somebody was sad or grieving or sorrowing, they called it grief, sadness, sorrow. Today, when somebody is sorrowing and grieving, people see depression. They see a mental disorder. And, and what this book, and these are not written by Christians, right? But, but what the book is demonstrating is that our world has changed to where we don't have a sense of normal sorrow in our culture anymore. Sorrow that is healthy. Sorrow that is normal human sorrow. Whenever we see sorrow, our culture usually gravitates toward, oh, this is a mental disorder that needs sort of professional psychological help. And uh, so you can see here that the Bible helps us to see it. that's not true, is it? Sorrow is not always bad. It doesn't reflect a mental disorder. It, it actually, actually, godly sorrow reflects the heart of God, doesn't it? That, that, that's a good thing. When you're supposed to be grieving and you're not grieving, that's not a good scenario. So uh, interestingly, uh, just how that looks. And so I did this. I did this for you because I love you guys. I just did a search for sorrow and sadness. And you know what Google gave me? Almost the whole page were all references on what? Depression. Because even Google doesn't know how to translate that. Google hears sorrow and it thinks depression. And I think Google is reflective of our culture. Okay, And here's another interesting thing. The, the strength and duration of normal godly sorrow follows the proportions of the situation. Does that make sense? God designs us in a way that both the strength of the sorrow and the duration or the longevity of the sorrow is supposed to be proportional to the, the situation itself. So, for example, if your fish dies, the, your eight-year-old might have some grief and, and some sorrow, and that's appropriate. But that grief for the fish that dies ought to be shorter and shallower than the grief that happens when grandma dies, right? Because the value is greater. The relationship is much more significant, right? So, so that, that's the situation, that, that the, the type of grief is supposed to follow in proportion 
to the nature of the situation. You say, well, what happens when, you know, the fish dies and it's six months and my eight-year-old... Okay, well, that, that's an occasion for ministry then, right? Because that, there's something wrong there. Gr- grief has, has uh, steered off into the, into the weeds. But that's how it's supposed to work. However, not all sorrow is righteous sorrow. So, so here's, here's my... I've been waiting to do this. I've been waiting all semester to do this, okay? Here it is. Can your sorrow ever be sinful? Important question, isn't it? Okay. Uh, let me just give you some scenarios where I think sorrow can either be overtly sinful or we might just say unwise or unhelpful, okay? Because we're saying there is a godly sorrow that's good and right that we grieve and, and are sorrowful in the way that God is sorrowful. But like all emotions, a fallen world and a sinful heart. Uh, distorts and perverts those emotions sometimes, right? So that we're, we're grieving and we're sad in ways that are ungodly and unhelpful. So let me just give you some scenarios here, okay? How about this? Sorrow can be sinful when one is grieving the loss of something ungodly or unwise. You ever had that happen? Remember the Israelites? They're grieving and sorrowful. Why? Because they're in the wilderness. God has led them out of Egypt. And what are they saying? Oh, that we were still in Egypt. Oh, that we were back in slavery. And you're going, you're grieving that? They're grieving something that was ungodly that they lost. Think of... um, Think of that, you know, you know maybe there's a, an adultery situation or some inappropriate relationship and, um, and, and that gets discovered and then um, the person that was committing the adultery grieves the loss of that relationship. And you go, no, that was an ungodly relationship, right? So, so that would be an ungodly grief. You say, why does that happen? See, grief and sorrow are simply following what you value in your heart, right? So the reason that sorrow and grief is happening is because that person in their heart is still valuing what? They're valuing that relationship that they shouldn't have gotten involved in from the beginning. You see how that works? So in that scenario, we say that sorrow is sinful because it's grieving something, the loss of something that was ungodly or unwise. Here's another scenario. Sorrow can be sinful when one refuses to accept the hope and comfort of God in suffering. We actually have a psalm on this. This is really interesting. You can turn there. You can just listen. Psalm 77. You've probably read this in your Bible reading plan. Psalm 77, my voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. We say, good, that's right. You're supposed to turn to God in your sadness. Verse 2, in the day of trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out with weariness, but my soul refused to be comforted. Isn't that interesting? I've I've noticed this in my own heart and I've seen it in counseling many times. Sometimes people enjoy their sadness more than they want the comfort of God in it. It's interesting. It's, It's like a lot of things in our fallenness you go, really? But it's one of those things where people can actually find a, a twisted form of pleasure in grieving and being sad in inappropriate ways and they refuse the comfort and hope and help that God has for them. And I would say this is an indication of a ungodly 
and perhaps sinful sorrow. Because if you're grieving and sorrowing without clinging to the hope and comfort of God, that's not a good thing. And we, we, we may know from experience that usually doesn't go a good direction. Okay, So when you refuse to accept the hope and comfort of God. Number three, sorrow can be sinful when a person sins, but his sorrow over his sin does not lead to repentance. You seen this? Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, you know, I'm happy that there was this sorrow over your sin, but it was a worldly sorrow. You say, how do you know if it's a worldly sorrow versus a godly sorrow? Godly sorrow over your sin always leads to repentance. It leads to confession. It leads to you changing. It leads to you seeking God. It leads to you seeking counsel for help. Feeling bad about what you did and being sad about what you did but it doesn't lead you to God. It doesn't lead you to confession. It doesn't lead you to seeking forgiveness. It doesn't seek you to change that, that thing that you did that needs to change. That's a worldly sorrow. And you know, this happens all the time, right? People get caught and they feel sad. People experience negative consequences for their sin and they feel sad. People lose trust with someone else because of their sin and they feel bad. But all of those, all those moments of feeling sad are not determinative they're not they're not quite where we need to get if we're really if we're merely grieving over the consequences and sad about the outcomes and not first and foremost brokenhearted because we've sinned against god and we need his help and repentance do you see that so um sorrow can be sinful when it doesn't go far enough to lead us back to repentance into seeking God's help. Sorrow can be sinful when it arises from grumbling and discontentment and complaining or even accusing God uh, of wrongdoing. Uh, Paul talks about this to the Philippians. He says, do all things without grumbling and complaining, right? Uh, James says, um, we, we, we talked about this last week, right? A, a grumbling, discontented spirit doesn't honor the Lord. Job, right? Job was accusing God of wrongdoing. And in chapter 40, verse 2, God says, uh, Will the fault finder, that's Job, contend with the Almighty? Let him who accuses God answer him. That's not a good scenario to be in. And, and Job was dealing with huge amounts of sorrow. And, and while much of his sorrow and grief was godly and appropriate, when that sorrow and grief began to be fueled by his wrong belief that God was being unjust and that God was uh, doing wrong, that's an ungodly sorrow at that point, isn't it? Uh, sorrow can be sinful when it emerges from a faulty interpretation of reality or is based on deceit or lies. Again, our emotions, guys, our emotions are a fruit of our heart. A fruit of our heart. Your heart is a product of what you're putting into it. So if you're believing wrong things, if you're interpreting life in a wrong way, if you're focused on the wrong thing, well, guess what? Your emotions reflect all of those wrong things in your heart. So sometimes we're sad, but that sadness is based on the fact that my heart has not interpreted or is not uh, fixed on what's true or is not clinging to God. And so that sadness is misguided because it's based on a faulty assessment of what's going on. Does that make sense? And that's hard because when someone's sad, what do you want to do? You want to hug them and comfort them. And yet, if you love them, 
if their sadness is misguided, part of the need of the moment is to help them to see at some point, maybe this sadness is misguided. Maybe this sadness is actually inappropriate because you're believing this to be true when it's not. When you've, and you know this, someone has said something to you that you think is hurtful. And so there you are, you're sad, you're hurtful. And then, you know, a couple hours, a couple days, a couple weeks later, you find out you misinterpreted what that person said. You've been there, right? And, and, and they were not saying anything hurtful at all. And you go, oh. Now at that point, you have a decision. If you believe them, your sorrow will go away. What we often do in our pride is we want to cling to that, don't we? And say, well, I don't, I'm not sure I believe you. I don't, right? So, that you, but we've all been there. And that, that's what I'm saying here is that sadness is just following what your heart is doing, like all emotion. Okay? Now, how does God help us in sorrow? Uh, again, this is a review of last time, so um, I'm not going to, we're not going to do too much on this right now. But uh, let me just remind you, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. That's one of his titles. He's acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53.3 says. And verse 4 says, He came to bear our sorrows and griefs. So we can go to Him. Uh, He is sympathetic to our struggle. He knows experientially the nature of our grief and sorrow. And He can help us. Remember Hannah? Why would God do that? That this dear woman that loved the Lord, that sought Him, that worshipped Him... Why would he keep from her something that was a good desire? Why would he do that? What's what's God doing in sadness? What do we see in Hannah's life, in Paul's life, even in the life of the Lord Jesus? God being glorified because that sadness does what? It moves you to God. It's one of the things God does to nudge you back to him. And so sadness, and we see that in Hannah's life, it, it led her to worship, it led her to communion, it led her uh, to, to seek the Lord. And we saw that in Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, we see it with Jesus in the garden, right? He's got this sorrow and grief, what does he do? Does he mope around the garden complaining? What do we see Jesus doing in the garden the night before he goes to the cross? He's seeking his Father. That's what his godly grief and sorrow did. He turned to his Father, and Jesus illustrates what we're supposed to do. We've seen some of these, right? Sorrow causes us to examine our hearts. It, it causes us to, um, if, if it's sorrow because of our own sin, it leads us to repentance. Um, sorrow is an occasion to trust God more. Jesus says in John 14, do not let your heart be troubled, right? Believe in God, believe also in... Yeah, you see? That, 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 that's... That's giving in principle or in direction what we see God doing in Hannah's life and Paul's life and Jesus' life. Jesus saying, is saying, let your sorrow lead you to turn to me and believe me and trust me. Guys, sorrow reminds us that the world is broken. You're broken. I'm broken. The world, whole thing's broken. What hope do we have? We only have hope in Him. Jesus said what? In this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation, right? But take courage, what? I've overcome that world. And so we draw near to Him, trusting Him, right? Uh, Notice that that God provides other believers who can share in grief. Romans says, weep with those who weep. We've seen that this week, right? I I love watching Grace Bible Church. Because when there's a need, someone's in the hospital, 
um, someone has a, a tragedy. Uh, we, we, we elders call it the Grace Bible Church machine. Because it, it is a machine of care. And you got people running up to the hospital, people checking on others and whatnot, people writing notes, people calling, texting. That's what we're supposed to do. And, and, and here's the thing. Why are we called the body of Christ? Of all the things the, the, the Bible could call the church, why are we called the body of Christ? That's right. We are the hands and feet of Jesus' care to hurting people. Now, now does God provide that care directly to the heart? And Yes, He does. He does all that sort of thing. But one expression of God's care for hurting people is the church. And so when you call, when you pray, when you visit, when you weep, when you babysit to, or bring a meal, or you and I are being a part of the care package that God has for that person in sorrow. And, and that's a great way to be the body of Christ when something like this happens. And maybe most significantly, we've probably all seen this in some way, God redeems sorrow such that it works for our good. God can take something that was not intended to be a part of that perfect creation and he redeems it for something beautiful and good. So, so here's one of the things. Here's one of the questions you ask. In your sorrow, look for what God is doing through it. Look for what God is doing through it. Well, turn with me back to the book of Revelation. Can I talk to you about the future of sorrow while we quit here? <clears throat> what's the future of sorrow? There was no pain, there was no death, <clears throat> there was no grief, there was no disease, there was no loss in the first creation. Genesis 3 happens, sin comes into the world, and death through sin, the Bible says, the world's cursed, we're broken, and that's why we experience sorrow and pain. But there is coming a day when this will happen. Look at 21, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself, watch this, will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Why is that? You can go to the next chapter and it says, because Jesus is there. And you're there with him in glory. So, in this world we have trouble, but we trust the one who's overcome it. And when you're sorrowing and grieving or you're walking alongside someone who's sorrowing and grieving, part of how we care for them and part of why we have hope is by remembering this world is not our home. God doesn't want us getting too comfortable in this world because this world's broken and it's destined for judgment. But God is coming again to rebuild this place, a new heavens and a new earth that will be completely void of the pain of sorrow and grief and all that fuels it. And so we look to that day and we find encouragement and hope and endurance in those realities even as we walk through seasons of difficulty 
uh, before then. So let's pray. Father, thank you for these hopes and promises. Might we run to you in sorrow and grief and find you to be sufficient, uh, sufficient refuge and strength. Lord, I pray you'd give us wisdom as we care for others that sorrow and grieve, that we would take what we've learned and be able to love them and care for them well. And I pray that these promises would build us up as we sorrow and grieve and go through difficult things, that, um, that we will see your hand in the midst of that. We love you. Thank you that you share so much of this with us to have perspective, and especially that we know that we have a God who understands and will help us when we come to him in our day of grief. We're grateful. We pray in Jesus' name.